Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss implementation of the Affordable Care Act and a few related issues. With me for this discussion is Professor Len Nichols. Welcome, Len. Glad to be here, David. Thank you, Len. Uh, typically, I provide some brief context before we begin, but for this interview, none is required. Before we start, however, I'll note Professor Nichols' bio is, of course, provided on the website. So with that, Professor Nichols, let me begin by asking about the unanticipated slowdown in health care cost growth, a substantive issue when you consider, of course, Medicare is the third largest federal budget item. You discussed this issue at some length in your Senate Budget Committee testimony uh, this past July. For example, you noted the rate of Medicare cost growth in 2011 is less than a third of what it was in 2006, and recent CBO projections uh, show Medicare spending will drop. They project $400 billion over the next seven years. This is due in part to the downturn of the economy, amongst other reasons. So with all that, uh, you stated you're optimistic about slower growth um, uh, persisting uh, among or across all payers going forward. Why is that? Well, basically, David, because I think it's fair to say that uh, a combination of the economy, our continued very high health care cost growth and levels over the last few decades, and what the ACA unleashed has basically sent a very clear signal to our health care system. We cannot afford the system we've got. We have got to rein in cost. And a large number of hospital leaders, physician leaders, health plans have kind of gotten that message. And in some ways, while this all started before the ACA, it even started before the recession, it has, it has sort of been turbocharged by the ACA because the ACA kind of made it very clear we are not going back. We are going to reduce health care costs one way or the other. Okay. In your uh, budget, uh, referring back to your budget committee testimony, you also ID'd a few alternative payment models. For example, you noted the Blue Cross Blue Shield Massachusetts uh, so-called alternative quality contract. Among these, uh, which do you believe are the most promising uh, in bending the so-called uh, health care cost curve? You know, I think I would say we don't have a single model that seems to reach out as the best among all current ones, but I would say the class of models that seem to be most successful and the most promising are those that clearly link the incentive, the self-interest of the clinicians, of the hospitals, of the doctors with the social interest in reducing cost growth. And so there are lots of different ways to skin that cat. I think all of the models that are being undertaken patient-centered medical home, accountable care organization, bundle payment in some cases, all the way to global capitation and risk-adjusted global capitation, et cetera. All those different kinds of models can work in different contexts and are working, David, in different parts of the country. But which one is optimal kind of depends on what's, what the configuration of players is on the ground. So you, you can do capitation in California in a way you cannot do that in the East Coast, but you could certainly do shared savings over here and achieve similar results. So I think the key thing is not so much the specific model, but the general trend of rewarding providers for helping us reduce cost growth while, of course, in maintaining or even improving quality. You know, we're way better at measuring quality than we were 30 years ago. We're way better at measuring uh, health outcomes than we were 
20, 30 years ago, and therefore we can, we can link performance to payment in a way we never could before. And, of course, we have better IT. Yeah, that's all. That makes it all possible. It also, obviously, that's a major tool for the clinicians to uh, coordinate care, which is probably the the secret sauce in in uh, maintaining cost growth reduction over time. Okay, good enough. Uh, the ACA, as you're well aware, includes several provisions that would improve coordination and continuity of care. Likely, the most noteworthy is uh, shared savings, or as we just noted, uh, the accountable care organizations. However, these provisions risk accelerated market consolidation and increased market pricing power. Uh, as I noted in my intro to my June uh, interview with uh, Dr. Paul Ginsberg, uh, health, uh, hospital rather ownership, ownership is already highly concentrated uh, in over 80% of the 380 metropolitan statistical areas, MSA. Uh, this question is um, consistently begged. Uh, again, to what extent will have this unintended negative consequence? So my question for you as an economist particularly, how worried should we be about this? Well, David, we need to be worried about it, but I think we also need to keep uh, a little history and context in mind. Um, uh, Accountable care organizations that have come about as a result of the ACA have not increased market power. They've simply made clear the market power that was always present there before. Those towns where hospitals are dominant were, were dominated by those hospitals before all this started as well. What I think we need to think about is essentially balancing the potential for efficiencies and clinical integration and all the things that can produce cost reductions against the potential market power of having one system that becomes a, a system that no health plan can avoid, and that's really where they exert their pricing power to uh, keep costs up. One good thing that seems to be increasingly employed by plans faced with uh, de facto monopoly uh, hospital systems is the ability to do what I will call domestic medical tourism. I know a physician in, in Denver, Colorado, retired surgeon, um, six months into retirement, uh, basically called up a mining executive he knew because um, he was bored, and he said, you know, you're, you're spending too much on health care, and I'm bored. Let me help you. He focused on 15 expensive conditions. This mining company had to pay for their workers to get treated, you know, things like shoulder surgeries and knee replacements and stuff like that, you know, complicated joint, mostly orthopedic. He focused on those 15 conditions. He found the best hospital, best value hospitals around the upper Midwest, and basically they set up a, a set of incentives for the patients. If you go to the centers of excellence, they call them, where they had very low or zero infection rates, very good outcomes at lower cost, then we'll give you zero copay, fly your spouse with you, all that stuff. He lowered total PMPM for that company three years in a row, just focus on those 15 conditions. Now, nobody had to go to Thailand, nobody had to go to, to India, but in fact, you know, from Wyoming to Denver is, is not all that far. And it turns out, if you think about that, that's the best check on local market power is being able to say, you know what, if you're going to charge me a price above what I know it costs, I'm going some other place. Interesting, interesting uh, perspective. Thank you. Before we get into the uh, Affordable Care Act uh, per se, uh, let me just throw in um, uh, one other question I think we have time for. You probably read the last couple of days the union uh, complaints 
concerning uh, the administration choosing to, for the first year, drop uh, the employer mandate. Mm. Uh, the question, moreover, regarding the employer mandate is that employers comparing the penalty versus what they pay uh, an employee premium uh, is attractive. Uh, so w what's your sense, again, a, a consistently begged question, what's your sense about employers dropping uh, health plans for their employees? Well, you know, it's a really fascinating argument because economists have always argued, and I certainly am one, and therefore I, I've drunken our own Kool-Aid here, health care benefits are part of a compensation package. And to an employer, whether it's wages or health care or child care or pension, it's all a cost. And so there really are trade-offs among them. And I would say, you know, if... if um, total compensation could be reduced by 10 or 15 percent um, just from anything, cut wages, drop health insurance, then they would do that today. But they can't because of competition for labor. Well, what we're talking about then is a world in which uh, up until next year, in fact now 2015, there's never been a penalty for not offering, yet most firms offer and most workers have access health insurance. Why is that? Because they use it to compete for labor. So in a world where they're offering health insurance with no penalty, why will they suddenly drop if there is a penalty? I <laughs> just, you know, there's something wrong here. So I think what what is uh, is certainly the case is that a lot of firms are feeling the stress of health care cost growth over time. They would like to not have to pay as much as they're paying, but they're not going to a wholesale dump workers and make them go off on their own and so forth because they would lose the uh, essential competition for labor out of that. There are some firms that are on the cusp whose workers don't have access to competitive labor markets, and it is more of a risk in a, in a deep recession environment. That's certainly true. Uh, but, you know, your sort of classic fast food workers or, or retail workers where they don't always have bargaining power – but you know what? Those firms often don't off, don't offer today. So I just don't see the the grand phenomenon of the huge shift of employers dropping because of a mandate or not because of a mandate. They're going to offer health insurance as part of a compensation package as long as it's perceived to be necessary to attract the kinds of workers they want. What I do think will happen over time, David, is that smaller firms that basically suffer from diseconomies of scale, from inability to do risk pooling, they're going to say, you know what, if I give you a fixed amount of money and let you go and, and call that higher wages and, and what I spent on health care last year and let you go into the exchange and buy what you want to fit you, the exchange will be able to offer, in most cases, way more choice than small employers can offer their workers, probably better efficiency, certainly better risk pooling, so it's actually a potentially better deal for smaller employers to give the workers a higher wage and let them go off and buy their own. For the large firms, though, David, I think it's really going to come down to can the firm work out a better deal than the exchanges can offer? And I think they're going to be making that basic make-or-buy decision for the next 20, 30 years. And I think, for your point, I think that was the Trader Joe's decision announced uh, yesterday. Uh, fair enough. Let me ask you, I do want to ask again about um, how the ACA might be improved, but as a lead-in, let me ask you this question. Uh, since you spend equal time on both sides of the aisle, 
Uh, leaving aside perhaps uh, the individual mandate, in, in your view, what substantively is the argument or complaint congressional Republicans have against uh, the Affordable Care Act? As you're well aware, of course, the House Republicans have had at least 40 votes um, uh, to repeal uh, what they term Obamacare. Well, David, I do think it's important, as your as your last point there uh, suggests, there really isn't one Republican voice on this question. In the House, they seem to be dominated by a caucus that very much wants to repeal the whole thing. They basically, in my view, have reached a position where they don't think government should be involved in health care. The logical extension of their current position would be to repeal Medicare and Medicaid. And, and, you know, lower taxes a little bit and, and basically have people go on their own. And, and I just think that's, that's an extreme position that is not likely to capture the imagination of the American people. The more reasonable Republicans who still do exist and we need them to be louder as we go forward, um, have, I think, some legitimate, uh, things they would have changed in the ACA had they chosen to stay engaged, I will point out. They chose to back out. Okay, fine, here we are. We will come back to an adult conversation as a nation. We have to. And when we do, I think what you'll see is those Republicans pushing what they have historically supported, and that is more malpractice reform, a, uh, a more state flexibility. You know, there's a provision, David, in the law that says that if a state has a better idea about how to achieve the coverage goals of the Affordable Care Act, in 2017 they would be allowed to ask for a Uber waiver and be allowed to implement that new policy as long as Washington thought it would work. Well, what if that had been offered to states at the beginning? That would have been a perfectly reasonable, in my view, um, um, offer to states to you know say look if you want, if you got a better way to do it then you tell us and you do it and that would have been very popular. Look at what Arkansas eventually worked out. Essentially, that is Arkansas being granted something like the creativity that would have been unleashed in 2017. Well, you know that can, that's something you can move up in time once Republicans and in in the in the Congress as well as in the states get off the ideological warhorse and and start trying to make this law better. All right, so let's get to the specific question about making the law better. You did mention uh, a few Republican uh, favorites, uh, but more uh, parochial to your view, um, you did note price and cost transparency in your budget committee testimony. But what ideas do you think are also relevant or helpful in improving the Affordable Care Act? Well, you know, the best thing about this conversation we're now having as a nation, and again, it's probably more clear below the radar of the Washington airwaves at night, but uh, that is to say in the healthcare system where real people running health systems work and live, um, the, the best thing about this direction we're moving is to use more market forces, to use more market incentives to align the interest of the clinicians with the social interest in lowering cost growth over time. You can't make markets work well, however, unless you've got very transparent price data, unless people actually know what things cost and know what they're buying. And so what we need is much more transparency, not less. And one of the tools that has emerged and seems to be um, a pretty useful one for lots of people are all-payer claims databases. And what those are are repositories where all the payers, all the plans, all the employers put their data into one place so that you can look at, not to, not to 
spy on what any individual plan is paying any individual hospital, but to aggregate at the at the geographic level so you can say, you know what, in in Lincoln County, we've got a real problem with high low birth weight. We've got way more low birth weight every year than everybody else. Why is that? Right now, David, we don't know how we're doing county by county or sub-state by sub-state. And so fundamentally, looking at quality, looking at outcomes, looking at price, looking at cost, why does a C-section cost six times as much in one part of the state as another? Why does a knee replacement cost six times as much? That Those six-to-one variations in the very same procedures have been documented over and over and over but we can do this on a much more systematic way, and that will enable us to do a better job of reconfiguring the incentives that can drive us to the promised land. You can't do that without good data, and that's really what a lot of different um, initiatives are trying to engender. And this price uh, differential is, is absent any quality improvement or difference as well. As far as we can tell, um, it's almost independent. Of, it's almost random. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me, we do have time for uh, this uh, final question. As you're well aware, uh, as of uh, today, only 28 states uh, are seemingly going to take advantage of the Affordable Care provision to expand Medicaid coverage next year. Uh, since you're a professor uh, at Virginia's George Mason University and advise the Virginia Center on Health Innovation, uh, what's your sense? Does the Commonwealth take advantage of the ACA provision to expand Medicaid? Well, you know, David, I would definitely want to put this in context first, and that is you mentioned that 28 states have now indicated they're going in that direction. Do you know that in 1965 when we created the Medicaid program, which you know was at the same time we created Medicare, the first year of the program, basically, there was no real plan. We basically said, we'll pay 50% of whatever you're doing now for the poor. We'll figure out what to do the next year. That first year, David, only 26 states took up that offer to take the federal money, to take the 50% on the dollar. So 28 today, 26 then, that's actually not so bad when you think about it. America's always moved in uh, slower paces than uh, some would like. So let's let's turn to Virginia now. So the deal in Virginia is that the Senate uh, was actually in favor of Medicaid expansion. The Chamber of Commerce is in favor of Medicaid expansion, and obviously the Hospital Association and and Medical Society, etc. The people who oppose Medicaid expansion in Virginia are pretty much the ideological conservatives, and they do dominate the uh, House of Delegates. Uh, and the and the the governor and so forth, but I would say broadly the political position that opposes it is, is the position that worries about cost in the long run. So what Virginia actually passed in their final budget deal was this: it said that there will be a Medicaid expansion starting in July of 2014, not January but July, if and big if, if uh, a commission appointed by the leadership of the House and the Senate has a majority vote in favor of this proposition that Virginia has sufficiently reformed its Medicaid program that they are confident costs won't go up beyond what's uh, budgeted. So what Virginia is doing as we speak is documenting and indeed implementing 
essentially a series of reforms across the Commonwealth in order to present that evidence to the Commission. I believe they've had two meetings in public so far. I believe they have one more scheduled, and then I think they vote in November, um, somewhat conveniently, after the off-year governor's election. <laughs> right. and, and frankly, David, the governor's election is likely to determine this, this uh, decision. But anyway, in the current law with the current governor, there is a provision by which there could be an expansion, but it would require a, a majority of this commission to vote for um, essentially sanctioning what the Medicaid reform progress to date has been in order for them for the fiscal conservatives to feel comfortable about going forward. So I would say the best bet is the members of the Senate and that committee will likely vote yes. The members of the House, if they had to vote today, would vote no, but there's a few more months of evidence to present, and then there's the election reality to uh, concentrate the minds. Okay, thank you, Len. And with that, unfortunately, we're at our time boundary, so I appreciate your time today. Uh, thank you very much. Glad to be here, David. Take care.